So Matthew 12, 46 to 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mothers and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. All right, well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm the lead pastor here. Great to have you with us if you've just tuned in or whether you're a regular member here and you're with us week in and week out. A quick word of thanks to the church this week for filling out the church life surveys. That was so helpful for our planning. If you haven't done that yet or you meant to get around to it, there's still time. Uh, if you could fill those out today, that would be amazing. Obviously not right now. Right now is church time. Um, but, uh, but later on today, that would be a, a massive help as we plan forward. And as we look as a church to continue to make more and stronger disciples, not just in this year, but into 2022, regardless of what happens and what's coming up. So I look forward to that. The other thing to, um, to keep in mind is just, uh, just stay tuned to your emails. We'll let you know as developments roll through, as restrictions ease, and as we find out a little bit more about uh, the shape of what things will look like as lockdown starts to ease. Um, so please be in touch through that. Also, if you have any questions, anything you'd like to know, um, please reach out and let us know. We really want to stay in touch over this and we want to make sure that no one is left behind as we move towards reopening whenever that is. Uh, so we want to be moving through that as a church community. And we want to do that because really of the passage that we're looking at today. The fact that church, according to Jesus, is family. That church isn't a building, it's not a time or a place, it's a group of people gathered by Jesus to live for Christ, saved by Him to do the Father's will. And if we understand this correctly, we will see that Jesus' vision for church is disruptive no matter what kind of cultural background you come from. So you can learn a lot about what a culture believes by the stories that are told over and over again, particularly the ones that are passed down from generation to generation. And, uh, and let me just, I'm going to start this one with a Cambodian fable, I guess is the way to describe it. And as I'm telling it, I want you to think, what is, it, what is it that this is communicating? What belief or tradition is this communicating to a people group? All right, we're back on. Hopefully you can hear me now. I'll just clear out the old mic. We just ran out of batteries there. All part of doing church live. Uh, but... um. Uh, yeah, as I kick off this um, Cambodian fable, just try and think, what is this actually trying to communicate? It tells the story of a rich young widow who lived on the edge of the village, so on the far outskirts. She chose to live away from the centre of where people were. Her baby falls sick and she's desperately looking for help when a thief dressed as a monk comes to visit her and plans to rob her. And he tells her that a demon is holding on to the baby and that's why the baby is sick and tells her that he knows how to cure her. And so what he does is he, he gets her to take the baby out to this, it's kind of a, a rice-crushing device. It looks like a seesaw. At one end it has a bowl, and you stand on the other end, and on the opposite end of where you're standing, there is a hammer that crushes the rice. And so he says, put the baby in the end where the rice is normally crushed, and stand on the other end yourself, and this will frighten the demon to let go of the child, and then they'll be free and healthy and happy. And so she does as she's 
told, she stands on the other end of the lever while the hammer is kind of hovering over the child. And while she's doing that, the thief then robs her of absolutely every possession in her house. And while she calls out for help, no one comes because she's so far out of town. And by the time someone actually comes and helps her, it's too late and the thief is long gone and she's lost her livelihood and her fortune. Now, what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that if you set yourself apart from the community, if you set yourself as an individual aside from the community, this is what happens. Bad things happen. The moral of the story is be a part of the community, conform to the norms of the community, and things will go well for you. And if you don't, look what happens. It's a cautionary tale. But it's not just Eastern cultures that have cautionary tales. We have cautionary tales too. In fact, this year there was a rewrite of the Cinderella story, and contained within it is a cautionary tale. Now, I will drop a few spoilers here, but if you're worried that that's going to ruin the film for you, don't worry, nothing could ruin this film. Uh, if you've seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about. But in this story, uh, there's kind of a rewrite of the character of Cinderella, and she is a, a young entrepreneur dressmaker, and instead of going to the ball uh, to meet boys, she goes to meet angel investors who are going to kind of, you know, fund her startup. Um, but not only that, but when it comes to the point where the prince wants to marry her, offers to marry her, she decides, actually, I can't do that because that will get in the way of my career. And so she literally says, I have to choose me. And similarly for him, he initially is unsettled by this, but then he realizes he doesn't want to be a prince anyway. And he doesn't really care about all this, you know, royal sort of stuff and all that sort of garbage and he decides and literally says that the way that he's going to choose me is by going with her to travel the world, not get married and, um, and help her start up her career. But kind of in case the message wasn't loud enough already, there is within this story a little story, a little cautionary tale. And in this story, Cinderella's stepmom is a woman who actually was a prodigious pianist but set aside her dreams and aspirations of becoming a pianist to marry safe and conform to the expectations of her family and her community. And that's why she has become so bitter and horrid and vile. And the cautionary tale is this is what happens when you put other people's expectations ahead of your own dreams, wants and desires. It's a cautionary tale against not being an individual. And so we have here from Eastern cultures cautionary tales about being an individual ahead of the community. Then we have our own Western cautionary tales about putting the community needs ahead of an individual. But what Jesus is going to say about church is going to shatter both of those expectations. That he's saying that to know him means that your allegiance is not first to yourself or to your community and family around you, but to Christ himself. And that to follow Jesus is to be welcomed into a new family with new joys, new privileges, but also new obligations. That what it means to be one of his people will be to be a part of the family of God and to be adopted in by your heavenly Father. And so I'm going to pray that we will see what Jesus has to say here in Matthew 12 and that it will give us a deeper understanding of the richness of church community and of following Christ with our whole heart. So let's pray as we open God's word together today. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father by the blood of Jesus. We praise you that the church is your idea and your design, that you have appointed Christ the head of the church, 
the beginning of a new humanity, and that through his death and resurrection, you have begun a new people. And we pray that we would see this in all its richness and goodness, that we would see the ways in which this causes us to leave our own culture's priorities and principles and to have a new allegiance to Christ. Now, Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, to get you up to speed as to where this story falls, the reading that Anna read out just before, last week Jesus faced the accusation that the reason he could perform miracles, that he could cast out demons, was because he was actually being empowered by Satan himself. Jesus answers this with a strong warning, saying that if you confuse the power of the Holy Spirit with the power of Satan, then you have completely mistaken who Jesus is, and your only chance of forgiveness before God is to understand and believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And so if you get that wrong, there is no chance of forgiveness, whether in this age or the age to come. And going on from that, Jesus reissues this warning from the Sermon of the Mount that there are good trees and bad trees, that you know the good trees and bad trees by their fruit. And he says, going on from that, that actually within this generation, there are those who demand signs and want party tricks from him, but really they have no idea who the Christ is. And not only that, but these people who think that they are a part of the kingdom of God and a part of the family of God are actually on the outside of it. And then going on from that, he says one of the strangest things in all the book of Matthew. At the end of this section where there's been so much opposition to Jesus... He kind of rounds off this section by saying this. In Matthew 12, 43 to 45, he says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first so it will be with this evil generation. Now, what is that? What is Jesus talking about here? He says an evil spirit that is in a person leaves, goes out to the desert, finds nowhere for rest. It's a waterless place. And so then comes back to the person, finds it like a house in perfect order, and then throws some kind of a demon party, invites seven mates around, and then the house, which is the person, is then in a worse state at the end than at the beginning. What on earth is Jesus talking about here? Well, even though the, 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 the expression is strange, the meaning of it is actually reasonably clear. Now, this may be a saying or an expression that was familiar to the people that Jesus was talking about. It's unclear. But the meaning of it is reasonably clear. The idea is that there is a person who is in a bad way, then a demon leaves them and they have an opportunity to change or to in some way resist things. But when the demon comes back, is just as, the person is just as open to their oppression as they were in the first place. And so then things get much, much worse. And Jesus finishes by saying, so it will be with this generation. What he is saying is that this generation had a chance to change, had a chance to repent, had a chance to do something different. And they didn't. And so by the time this generation has passed away, they will be in a worse state than, the, than when they began. And the main reason for that is that the generation that Jesus is speaking to is the first generation of God's people who've been able to meet God in the flesh. And instead of following him and obeying him, they will reject him and even kill him. 
They will be up to that point, the wickedest generation ever. By the time they've all passed away, it will be worse than when they began because they will have met Jesus, had the chance to be saved and instead choose wickedness. And so amid all this rejection, all these accusations that are being flung at Jesus, all these people who continually reject and ultimately will kill Jesus, you must be thinking, is anyone going to follow him? And that's why it comes to this teaching on Jesus' family. Because Jesus is about to explain not what it's going to be like to reject him. He's been through several confrontations about that. Now he's going to explain what it's going to look like to actually follow him, to be one of the people who actually understands who he is and responds rightly to his lordship. And that's why we get this teaching on family. Look what it says in Matthew 12, 46 to 50. It says, while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my brother and who am I, and told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We see that in, in verse 46, Jesus is teaching and his family can't get access to him. So they pass on a message to kind of get to Jesus to say, hey, your family are looking for you. And then in verse 48, this man passes on a message to Jesus. Now, just as a quick aside, I don't know if you noticed there, but we go straight from verse 46 to verse 48. You may have noticed this in your Bible before, that there are a few points in Scripture where you'll notice that verses are missing. Now, it may surprise you to know, but the Bible didn't originally come with chapter and verse numbers in it. The chapter numbers were added in the 13th century, and the verse numbers were only added in the 16th century. But the, we've held on to that numbering system ever since, and it's a way of being able to access scriptures well or being specific about memorizing a verse. But the reason that occasionally you'll find verses that are missing or in brackets or kind of put into subpoints in your Bible is that the translations being used in the 16th century, some of them were a little bit later than the manuscripts that we have access to now. And what we can tell is that some verses made it in a little bit later and probably weren't there in the original text. And you might be thinking, well, isn't this a little bit concerning? And we'll actually get, we'll get into this a lot deeper in the second week of our doubt series. But for where we are at the moment, it's worth saying that this is actually a reason for greater confidence in your Bible rather than a lack of confidence. The verse that actually appears uh, later on reads this way. It says, Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. Now that verse doesn't actually change the meaning of this text. And in fact, in 99% of the cases where there are any kind of variants, they're either spelling mistakes or ones like this that actually don't change the meaning of the text significantly in any way. But the fact that we hold to a tradition that wants to as clearly and as truthfully as possible know what the original texts were should be a reason for confidence in us. That actually we haven't just had something that's been constructed later and is pretending to be the Word of God, but that we are a community that are committed to truth and we want to know with absolute accuracy what the Word of God says. And that we are a part of a tradition that takes that seriously and that we can have reasonable confidence that the words that we have here are the original recorded ones. And so without going too much further into it, I'll leave that for a couple of weeks from now. It's worth saying that the Bible you have is reliable. And the meaning of this story as we get to it is stands and is clear. 
See, what is the meaning of this text? Jesus' family want to speak to him, and someone says, Jesus, your family wants to speak to you, and he responds by saying, who are my family? And he gestures to his disciples, and he says, these people are. More than even my biological family, he says, the people who are my family are those who do the will of my Father. Jesus is radically redefining the people of God and family. Now, this is shocking today, but it was shocking in an ancient Near Eastern culture. Just think about how crazy that would sound to the people around him, how offensive that would be to them. Jesus is saying, my real family are these people who I have actually no biological connection to necessarily, but the fact that they follow the will of my Father means that they are my family. And we're talking about a culture that practiced primogeniture, meaning that the firstborn son was the one who was likely to inherit everything because he would be the first one to kind of continue the family business going. And the idea was that family was about status and it was about money. The way that you accumulated money one generation after another was by working hard and passing on family wealth and trying to accumulate it over a series of generations. Not only that, but family was about status. If you, you would have a family tree and if there was someone who had behaved shamefully or dishonorably in your family, they would be cut out. You pruned the family tree, as it were, to ensure that you were associated with people of honor and not of shame. Because family was about status and it was about economic security. And here, Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you get a whole new family. That means that your name gets wrapped up with a whole bunch of names that you have no control over. That means that you will actually get new obligations that are not connected to you biologically. Now for them, that's incredibly compromising. Because if you think about the story of the Gospel of Matthew so far, who are the kinds of people who are getting saved? Jesus is accused of hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. That means to become a follower of Jesus means that your new family tree involves undesirables in your community. It means potential shame. This is crazy in the ancient Near East. He's saying if you really had these kind of people in your family tree, they were the kind of people that you'd probably want to cut out. And yet Jesus says, no, if you're going to follow me, my people are the ones who do the will of my Father. And it doesn't matter what background or where they're from, once you do that, you're a part of this family. The church is your family. And the thing here is that Jesus is not calling his people to do anything that he would not do himself. Jesus himself was willing to lose honor to be, to be associated with us as his people, to call us his brothers and sisters. It reminds me of, there's a story told by Min Jin Lee, and it's a long one, really covering five generations of Korean families who end up living in Japan. But it centers, the story centers really on Sunja, who's the only daughter of two hardworking but poor parents who run a boarding house that's mostly for local fishermen who kind of come and go. But Sunja falls pregnant out of wedlock, which at the time, sort of in the early part of the 20th century, was an incredibly shameful issue. But one of the people who's boarding with them is a pastor named Isaac, and he's had various health issues, and her and her mother actually nurse him back to good health. And he decides that he wants to marry the daughter. And the mother is almost cautioning him out of it. She's saying, look, my daughter's already pregnant. This is going to bring shame upon you and all of that. 
But he decides because of his faith in Jesus that he wants to marry her to have his name caught up with hers so that she might not be exposed to shame and harm for the rest of her life. He's willing to do that as an act of redemption. And in a small way, that mimics the gospel. That Jesus entered humankind and entered humanity to take on our sin and shame and to redeem us. He came to call us brothers and sisters and was not ashamed to do so. In fact, if you've been reading the readings from Hebrews so far, you, this may have even stuck out to you. Look what it says in Hebrews 2, 11 to 17. He says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why it is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus became one of us to share in our sin and shame, even though he had none himself. He associated himself with humankind. He became fully human. It says here in Hebrews, he had to become like us in every way. Notice there that it says it was not angels that he died for. He did not share a nature with them, and therefore his death could not be on their behalf. But he shared a nature with us, with humankind, men and women, that he might die for us, and then he might start a new family, the church. And it says here, he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So Jesus says here in this passage, these are my mother, brother and sisters. These are the people I came to die for. This is my family. And that's why from here on out, the most common term for the church in the New Testament is to talk about one another as brothers and sisters, as the family of God. The whole reason Jesus came, the reason he is teaching this here, is he's saying, if you were to follow me, you're going to be welcomed into a new family. To be saved is to be saved into a community, this new community called the family of God. You get a new heavenly father, but along with that, you get new brothers and sisters. And so there are a couple of implications for this. And I think the first and most obvious one is this, that you can't be ashamed of your family. That's probably the most obvious implication, isn't it? You can't be ashamed of your brothers and sisters in Christ. If Jesus was not ashamed of you, what right do you have to be ashamed of your brothers and sisters? So let me ask you this. Are you ashamed of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, I'm not talking about when it comes to scandal or betrayal in the church, when people do things or hide things that really dishonor and defame the name of Jesus. Now, I'm talking about regular church life. Are you ashamed to be known in your workplace or in your friendship group as someone who follows Jesus and is connected to the church, to be associated with Jesus and his people, do you try to almost keep a low profile about it? Why? Jesus was not ashamed of you. 
He was more than willing to lose face for you, more than willing to lose more than face, to even lose life for you. But it's not just that. Can you sometimes find yourself falling into quiet judgment of God's people and almost in a, in a, in a, in a private way being ashamed of God's people? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, kind of describes the, the relationship in the book is a senior devil writing to a, a younger devil about how to basically try and as much as possible meddle with the life of a new young Christian. And in this section of the book that I'm about to read out, the guy that this devil has been appointed to has just become a Christian and he's about to join church. And so he's kind of, you know, resigned to the fact that this guy now follows Jesus. But what he's hoping to do is to at least undermine his Christian faith. And so he writes this. This is the older devil writing to the younger one, apprenticing him. And he says, My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. There is no need to despair. One of our greatest allies at present is the church itself. When he goes inside and he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up after him with one shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbours that at this point he has avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbours. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. The enemy being God, obviously. The language is all backwards. No matter... Uh, your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Work hard then on the disappointment and anticlimax which certainly is coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. Have you ever found yourself falling into this pattern of thinking? Jesus will not have this. Have you ever looked out at the people whom Jesus bought with his own precious blood and been ashamed of them? Whether you're intelligent and everyone else seems a little bit not. Whether you're world-wise and the Christians around you seem just a little bit Christian. Whether you think of yourself as holy and everyone else kind of worldly and compromised. Whether you think of yourself as theologically sound and everyone else a bit fluffy. You may have your opinion on what will best serve the church, but according to Jesus, you cannot be ashamed of his people, your brothers and sisters, your family in Christ. Jesus gestures to his disciples and said, these are my brothers, my mothers, my sisters, everything. This is my family. And now they're yours too. And we cannot be ashamed of one another, for Christ was not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That's the first point. If Jesus' teaching is true, which it is, we cannot be ashamed of the church of Jesus. But the second one is this, that with a new family, you get new obligations. See, the Western way of doing community is to say, I choose me, and I will associate with a community so far as, insofar as that community helps me achieve my personal goals and ambitions. In fact, that is probably the most modern characterizing of even the arrangement of marriage. 
that it's a contract between two individuals where if it results in very little interference with their own personal goals and ambitions, then it's a contract that will stand. But if not, then it needs to be discarded. Often the most natural way that we will approach community is with this mindset, a hyper-individualistic Western mindset. But Jesus is saying, no, when you become one of my people, you get a new family, and new families come with new obligations. Without conscious effort, the default way we relate to the church will be this individualist mindset. I'll do my thing, and as so long as the people around me kind of help with that, then that's great. Otherwise, look, I can take it or leave it. It's just the air that we breathe. But the truth is, with a new family comes new obligations. And there'll be times when we'll need to sacrifice for one another, where it will be inconvenient to be a part of a church family. Even just thinking about church life over this year, it's been a grace of God to see that this very thing at work in our church, to see people who have moved aside their own personal convenience or time in order to serve the greater body. Earlier this year, we moved to one service, and we knew this would be a challenging thing because we've been at two services for a long time. And for many of us, that didn't involve too much change at all. But for a bunch of people in this church, it meant massive sacrifice. In order to prioritize their church community, it meant moving around huge things. And they did it because the belief was that this would be best for the church community as a whole. But even just thinking more recently, going on Zoom... In order to continue as the body of Christ, as the people of God, we've moved on to a format that I realize most it's not our first preference to be meeting on Zoom. But your leaders have loved and served you by running these groups week after week, even though they're not able to do this face-to-face, in order to be the body of Christ at this time and to be there for one another. And you guys have tuned in week after week. We are still here 13 weeks into lockdown. Because we have chosen to set aside maybe our own personal preferences about it for the sake of building up Jesus' family. And so I just want to encourage you to, to press on in that. That we are called to be a church family, lockdown or no lockdown, pandemic or no pandemic. And to encourage you to, to continue to be an expression of God's family by loving one another, by setting aside at times our own personal preferences and desires in order to serve others. Because Christ is our model in this. That He set aside his privilege in order to serve us by dying for us and to build a new family called the family of God. Being a part of church means new obligations. That's the second thing. And the last thing is this. That God's people are marked by doing the will of our Heavenly Father who redeemed us. Notice what Jesus says there. He says, my people are the ones who do the will of my Father. Anyone who has come to faith, who has been saved... Now follows God, anyone who is that, that is my brother and sister and mother and father. And what this means is that as you go about doing the Father's will, you'll become, you'll draw closer to God's family. And not just in this church community in Sealite, but God's global church family. I was struck by this this week during Alpha. There was a a testimony. So Alpha is a, a course that we're running at the moment for anyone who's investigating or exploring faith. And it runs through the basic teachings of Jesus and the claims of Jesus and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But there was a testimony this week of two women, Marzia and Miriam, who lived in a country where it was incredibly dangerous to follow Jesus and to be a part of his church family. That actually they were arrested and imprisoned for their faith. 
And when they finally had escaped and fled their country, they went back into their country to distribute Bibles because they believed that Jesus' message was so life-giving and so worthwhile that they wanted to see more people come and be a part of Jesus' family. And so their ministry was basically to smuggle thousands of Bibles into a closed country. And what they would do is just put them in letterboxes, New Testament copies in letterboxes. And fast forward many years later, they were talking about their ministry in a church in Australia. And after they'd given their presentation about what they'd been doing and how they'd been distributing the Bible in their own country, someone came up to them after the service and said, we actually received one of those New Testament copies in our letterbox. We opened it, we read it, and our whole family was saved, and that's why we're here today. You think, what an incredible story of God's global family, of the gospel crossing borders, undermining oppressive regimes, and then creating this kind of almost family reunion in a whole other country. When you hear that story, I imagine you feel the opposite of ashamed of God's family. I'm honoured that I can call sister Miriam and Marzia. It's incredible what God's global family is doing. And as we go about seeking to honor Jesus, to grow stronger as disciples of him and to make more disciples, we're a part of God's global mission and the global family that is seeking to do the will of the Father. It's an incredible thing. And so to finish up, Here's my challenge for you this week in living out this reality of being Jesus' family. And we know that over this period it's been a difficult time. And we know because of the surveys that have come in that about a third of the church would say at the moment that they're really struggling, that they're finding things quite difficult. And really in some ways that's that's not unsurprising, is it? After 13 weeks of lockdown and just the difficulties that come with that, it's reasonably to be expected. We know that as well as that, about 10% of the church are actually feeling not very connected right now. And so I thought it would be great to finish our time by laying out this challenge to reach out to some people this week. To reach out to some people, maybe just within even your community group, but maybe if there are just people who come to mind as you're praying about God's church, if there are people that, that God just puts on your heart to reach out to, to do it, that during this time, we might be, even though we can't be face-to-face, We might be living as God's family. We might be living out the words of Jesus and loving and serving one another. And on that, as we kind of finish up, if you at the moment are struggling and are finding it difficult, just know that the truth of Scripture is that Jesus is not ashamed of you. Hebrews 2 says he was not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters in Christ, to be stripped naked, insulted and beaten for you, for us, And he's not looking at you being like, oh my gosh, God, why did this battle have to end up in my family? He loves you with an everlasting love. And so I just want to encourage you, if that's the space that you're in at the moment, to press on knowing that Jesus loves you and is for you and you are part of a church family. So let's be here for one another, even as we head towards reopening, that we will not forget that we are a part of a church family that we are called to love one another with a Christ-like love and all that Jesus might be honoured by his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us and that your love was not idle towards us, but that you sent Christ as an atoning sacrifice. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us and move us to want to do your will, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to live lives of godliness and love 
and all that Christ might be glorified in his church. And Father, we pray all these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.